Chapter Seven, Fall, from Corruption to Ascension. No clearer distinction could be made between the Latter-day Saint conception of human life and that of fellow Christians than is suggested by the entirely typical statement of E. Brooks Holyfield. The drama of salvation began when the Father and Son agreed to redeem the creation from the effects of the fall. Another representative Christian authority refers to the parameters of the Christian story as the whole complex of the divine dispensation from the fall of Adam to the redemption through Christ. These brief formulations have astounding implications. The entirety of the Christian message is reducible to a tragedy rectified. A third mainstream writer affirms this premise: God's purpose and goal in redemption. Is to reverse the sin, corruption, and death introduced into humanity by Adam, or, in the words of the greatest contemporary scholar of the Reformation, Jesus died in Palestine for human sin, in order to retrieve something from the wreckage of humanity's failure. As Latter-day Saints, we sense neither wreckage nor failure in the events of Eden. On one occasion, Joseph Smith said he was frequently asked, "Do you believe the Bible?" His reply was, "If we do, we are the only people under heaven that does, for there are none of the religious sects of the day that do." His answer was hyperbolic, but entirely accurate with regard to Genesis chapter three, verse twenty-two. And the Lord God said, "Behold, the man is become as one of us." Without exception, legions of commentators throughout Christian history have refused to take these words at face value. God was mocking Adam, explained the fourth-century theologian Ephraim the Syrian. His contemporary John Chrysostom went further and simply denied the accuracy of the passage, since it is obvious he wrote that they did not become God or receive the knowledge of good and evil. Centuries later, Andrew Willett, a commentator on Genesis, insisted that the Lord was speaking ironically. Reformers Philip Melanchthon, Peter Famiglie, and Conrad Pelikan also employed the term irony to explain away the plain meaning of Genesis chapter three, verse twenty-two. Joseph Smith, by contrast, read the verse as a simple statement of fact, and we note. That neither the word sin nor fall occurs in the sacred narrative. The great plan conceived in the heavenly assembly anticipated Eve's decision as a necessary prelude to the transition of the entire human family from premortality into mortality. God foreordained the fall. In Joseph Smith's mouth, the fall is no tragic descent; it is fruitful. Ascent. Human beings were born into the world by the fall, is how Joseph characterizes the aftermath in his first revision of the account in Genesis. This understanding was evident in the early church before Augustine rewrote the narrative. In the second century, the first authority to expound the story of the garden was Irenaeus. For him, writes one scholar. Man's role is not that of one created perfect only to fall into sin, 
but of one brought into being with all the imperfections endemic in human nature, but with the prospect of development as a part of God's creative plan into the divine likeness revealed to him in Jesus. The emphasis here is not on a fall in the past, but upon a growth in the future. Notice how exactly the statement agrees with what we stated previously, that the essence of the original gospel story was centred in Christ's invitation to follow in his steps, and Christians like Irenaeus saw what happened in Eden as part of that process. Latter-day Saints reject the entire story of salvation as reconstituted by Augustine and his descendants. Sadly, we still find ourselves employing a term, the fall, whose general meaning we emphatically reject, presumably because the term is so universally understood that we are forced to use it as part of a Christian common language. As children of the Restoration, however, we would be well served to always put fall in quotation marks. In the Genesis account, Eve and Adam are blessed to be fruitful and multiply. In Joseph's translation of the book of Abraham, there is a slight but momentous change. And the gods said, we will bless them. And the gods said, we will cause them to be fruitful and multiply. The gods are active agents behind the couple's fecundity, clarifying that this capacity to conceive is the specific form that Eve and Adam's blessing takes, adds weight to their intention that Eve should eat the fruit and thereby launch the project of human life. Her appellation, the mother of all living, bears comparison with the only other two women who are generative of so much light and life, Heavenly Mother and Mary, the mother of the Lord. Relief Society President Sarah Kimball's assessment of Eve deserves canonization. She wrote, Our great maternal progenitor is entitled to reverent honour for braving the peril that brought Earth's children from the dark valley of ignorance and stagnation and placed them on the broad progressive plain where they, knowing good and evil, joy and sorrow, may become gods. Mother Eve, for taking the initiative in this advanced movement, should receive encomiums of praise. Ancient and modern scripture alike affirm Eve's righteous motivation in seeking a fruit that was desirable to make one wise. In fact, the book of Enoch designates the tree from which he partook as the tree of wisdom, from which Enoch's old father and aged mother ate and came to know wisdom, and their eyes were opened. When young Solomon prays for wisdom at the beginning of his kingship, a prayer that pleases God, he asks for a heart that can discern between good and evil, the same gift the tree in Eden offered. The Bible admonishes us to get wisdom, and it was Joseph's explicit pursuit of this wisdom, encouraged by James, that launched the restoration. It should not surprise us, then, that the first canonized commandment of the new dispensation before the church was even organized was an injunction to follow Eve's example. Seek for wisdom, 
and behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you, and then shall ye be made rich. Behold, he that has eternal life is rich. This wisdom Eve sought is the basis of eternal life. And yet, clearly something tragic happened with the mortal transformation ushered in by the choice of Eve and Adam, and this consequence demands attention. First and foremost, death entered human experience. As saints, we may often pass right over the greatest destroyer of human happiness, the source of universal angst, and the primal catalyst behind all religious questing, the spectre of death, as if it were a mere blip on the screen of existence. At least, those secure in their faith may envision the process as a seamless transition, loved ones bidding us farewell and loved ones from beyond shepherding us across the threshold of death, with never a pause in the valley of death itself. In our minds, the rescue may be so complete, so assured, so fact of the future, that we may never suffer the pangs of incertitude that others do, the agony of anticipated absence that is permanent. Such blithe faith can come at a cost, perhaps only a chasm of fear and helplessness before the brute fact of death can accommodate the flood of grace that fills us with new life. Jacob marvels at the gift of a universal resurrection, breaking into ecstatic praise. Oh, the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace, because of the way of deliverance of our God, the Holy One of Israel, this death of which I have spoken, which is the temporal, shall deliver up its dead, which death is the grave. Wherefore death and hell must deliver up their dead. And it is by the power of the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel. Oh, how great the plan of our God! In that sense of a susceptibility to physical dissolution, Eve and Adam and their posterity fell. And in that sense, they and we need redemption and rescue. In this regard, the Book of Mormon provides a powerful reorientation of the meaning of that redemption. For most Christians, the word redemption conjures up rescue from sin, Satan, and hell. The purpose of redemption, as we quoted one scholar previously, was primarily to reverse sin and corruption. As we will see, the very word redemption led to peculiar notions among some early Christians of Christ serving as bait in order to ransom us from the devil. For Book of Mormon prophets, Christ's role as Redeemer is focused on his gift of resurrection. Alma pairs resurrection of the dead and redemption. Lehi taught that the principal purpose of Christ's sacrifice was to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead. Nephi, too, believed his sufferings were that the resurrection might pass upon all men. This gift of resurrection, universal and unearned, is an unconditional promise that we will live again. Such a supernal gift is largely obscured in the history of Christian conflict, consumed with doctrinal disputes over secondary concerns. The wars of the Reformation era and the fires of the Inquisition were fueled by disputes over the nature of the Trinity, 
the degree of God's presence in the Eucharist, the question of whether sacraments are symbols or channels of grace, and so forth. In our lives, we too may so anguish over the minutiae of worship forms or issues of little import that we forget the most unfathomably remarkable gift of all. As one Latter-day Saint with more hope than certainty wrote, it seems a pity to take one's immortality for granted, to expect it and count on it. It seems a pity to be so sheltered from the terror of death that one's gratitude for the resurrection is merely dutiful and perfunctory. Perhaps, truly, there are religious advantages to doubt. Perhaps only a doubter can appreciate the miracle of life without end. As Eve and Adam's posterity, we fall in a second way. Acquiring at conception our individual coat of skins, which some early Christians thought was a metaphor for our spirit's embodiment, we become biological organisms, inheriting all of those instincts and appetites and tendencies towards self-preservation with which nature endowed us. The theological step of incalculable damage was to associate those features of our new identities with sin and guilt, and to make such sin and guilt the central fact of the human condition. In other words, it is the action of our natural Darwinian selves that can impel us in a direction contrary to God and godliness. It is that side of our nature, that which comes to us through nature, that if unchecked can become the enemy to God, not our innate self, which is whole from the foundation of the world. Christian handbooks declare that the cause and substance of that fall was sin, and sin is equated with disobedience, an affront to God, a form of rebellion against an absolute, perfect sovereign. Sin is purposeful disobedience to the known will of God, according to one authoritative source. Catholic teaching about the New Testament sees sin as, above all, an offence against God. Given this near-universal association of sin with disobedience, perhaps it would make sense to next examine the principle of obedience and sin in light of restoration teachings. <laughs>